So what we've been doing last summer and this summer is looking at the book of Acts. And um, in the fall, we'll, we'll do a vision series for the church. And so we'll pause the book of Acts and return to it next summer, probably with some dipping in and out of some of the letters that were written at the same time that the book was happening. And I wonder what it's like for you to read Acts 21. Uh, I wonder if you've read it. And if so, what it's like to read about all these people prophesying and Philip, who had been a deacon from earlier in the church, has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And I was reading that, and I realized I picture them like they're four, uh, what would you say? Not twins, not triplets, but quadruplets. Thank you. Like, I picture them that way for no good reason whatsoever. What about you? What, how do you picture four unmarried women who prophesied? Do you have a good definition of prophecy? And then another man uh, talks to Paul about actually three different times. The Apostle Paul is told not to go to Jerusalem. And one man actually takes Paul's belt and binds up his own arm. And I'm, thinking, I'm mostly picturing the guy binding up his own arms to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But I'm realizing he took Paul's belt. What was that like? Like, he's like, hey, Paul, come here. And then he ties his own hands up to illustrate for Paul that it's going to be dangerous to go to Jerusalem. And I wonder, because I've been reading the Bible for a long time, and sometimes I will miss the richness of the stories and therefore then miss the depth and breadth of the point, which is that despite sometimes comical and sometimes terrible infighting within the church and persecution outside the church, the Holy Spirit continues to draw men and women to the Christian faith. You know, the word Christian was a negative term initially, but it stuck because it's true. They were described as followers of the way, a little bit more positive term. One time in a, in a attempt to raise a crowd. Some people say, these men are turning the world upside down. And they meant that negatively. And yet 2000 years later, we're like, they did. These women and men of the early church, in fact, turned the world upside down. But what happens in Acts chapter 21 is uh, the writer, whose name is Luke, gives us a ton of details about how Paul got back to Jerusalem for a bunch of reasons. One, so we would know that he had a good trip. We hear all these city names. And two, because a whole bunch of people thought Paul should not go to Jerusalem. And yet he goes anyway, which I think presses on us in how we think about God and religion and one another. And you're like, how? Well, it's described as prophecy. And when I hear you say the word prophecy, and I say the word prophecy, I think like Greek myth. Like there's an unstoppable truth. We don't know how we're going to get from here to there, but there's an unstoppable truth from here to there. And that's not how the Bible defines it. The Bible defines it much more broadly than that. Um, in this particular case, what's happening is really a warning to Paul. Um, and it, it, it's also truth speak. And you, I don't know if you care very much about prophecy, but in the middle of this text, it says in verse 10, Paul is in Philip's house where he has the four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying with them for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And you're like, that doesn't impress me. Except in Acts chapter 11, this same guy said there's going to be a famine. And there was. So we should listen to this person. In verse 11, it says, coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Doesn't say how. 
and bound his own feet and hands and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Before this, men and women had told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then this happens. And then they kind of double down on this. And Paul says he's going to go anyway. What do you do with that? So some people earlier in Acts 21 say, thus says the Lord, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul says, I'm going anyway. A man prophesies and takes Paul's own belt and binds his hand to illustrate the prophecy and says, don't go. And then Paul goes anyway. One of the, the things that's happening for those of us that are, are attempting to study the scriptures and learn what God says about himself and about us, we're learning a bigger definition. And you're like, I wonder if this matters. It matters for a bunch of reasons. One of them is we need to learn to read the scriptures, especially as the early hearers would have heard it. So what they hear when the word prophecy comes up is truth speak and warning. Here's the other reason it's important to you. You have prophets in your life. If you ask a friend for advice, and you're like, I would never do that. Well, that's a different kind of problem. You need friends that you can actually count on for wisdom, discernment, help, a shoulder to lean on. And they give you advice. And then you say, where did that come from? And they answer, when I prayed about it, this is the sense I got. This is the scripture that informed my advice to you. This is what I've observed about your life. And I took time with all of those. You have a friend who is willing and able to do that. And that is, at least in part, the gift of prophecy. You with me? That's not all of it. I don't know if that person can also predict famines. If so, we need to talk to them. I know some economists who would really appreciate knowing that. But for us as as Humans in a spiritual family, that's part of what we do. Now, there's a flip side to that, too. You have a friend that you ask their advice, and they give you the advice, and you say, tell me where you came up with that. And they say, I don't know, I'm just guessing. That person is not gifted in prophecy. And so don't ask for their advice. You see what I'm pointing out? I'm trying to say that, or I am saying, that we have spiritual family and this gift while the word is one that we don't often use, it is still available to us. You have friends that are thoughtful, prayerful, know the text. And I'm encouraging you to go to them. And if their advice sounds flippant, ask them where it came from. And hopefully they'll give you those definitions. I, have a number, I can point to them in the crowd, people that I go to, and I can ask them those questions and they'll answer them. That's what's happening here. And in verse 4 and verse 5, it's not as dynamic as a person taking Paul's belt off and tying his hands up, but other members of the church says, this Holy Spirit told us to tell you to not go to Jerusalem, and yet Paul goes anyway, which tells us that prophecy has more power than just information. Perhaps it was to encourage the church about Paul's calling. And perhaps the main purpose of the message was so that Paul was prepared because he goes anyway. Prophecy is not outside of regular faith either. That's why I wanted to talk about it so much, both because it's in the text. This is not outside of your story of faith in Jesus Christ. To have friends who will listen to you Pray about the question or the disorienting story or the sickness. Search the scriptures with you and then say, the Holy Spirit is saying this. And then if they say that, you need to then test it, right? Think about it. Pray about it. Look at the scriptures. But 
All of this to say, prophecy is something that is part of the mundane Christian life. It is not something reserved only for super spiritual or for apostles. It's for you and for me also. And if you don't have friends like that, I want to say one more thing about this. They're available to you in this spiritual family. And you're like, I tried that before and I got burned. Yeah, that happens too, because we're pretty imperfect as friends. It's still available and it's still good. And it's part of the mundane Christian life, the everyday Christian life. But the warnings don't deter Paul. Paul hears his friends and elders and co-laborers and then this man named Agabus in the house of Philip and perhaps his four unmarried daughters who were gifted in this chimed in also. The reason that's in the text, by the way, is to let us know that Philip's whole house worshiped Jesus. It's not uh, to tell us about them as prophets because Luke doesn't go on, but he describes them that way so we know something about his family. It doesn't deter Paul. And some of us, when we read the stories about Paul, sense that he had a knowledge of his purpose in life, his calling, to use a pretty well-worn Christian term, and you think that you don't have as good of a sense of calling as, Paul's, as Paul did. And part of the reason is, he's the Apostle Paul. He wrote all these books in the New Testament. We're still talking about him. There are secular historians that argue that he changed the world more than Jesus because of his letters, because of his itinerant preaching and travel. And so when we read Acts 21, you might sense his strong sense of purpose and calling. And you think, gosh, that would be nice if I knew what my role in the world is in in light of the gospel and, and the kingdom. You know that Paul spent at least five years as a blue collar worker? Did you know that? So he was a tent maker and he did that for at least a year and a half, at least in his missionary journey. Took him at least three years to learn how to do that. You know what they would do? Of course, all of you have a little bit of knowledge of tent making. I looked this up last night, by the way. I haven't known this for years. It was to take camel hair or goat hair or linen and stitch it together into tents. And this was not an easy task. You had to have the right kind of awls or would it be an ads or knives And that's part of the reason Paul was able to do it on his missionary journeys. You could bring your toolkit with you. My point in telling you something about tent making is not more Bible trivia for you. My point is, you know more about your calling, I think, than you think you do. Because your calling is where God has you. Loving him and the people in your life and doing the work that he's called you to do. Some of that work is easy to understand and how it interrelates with God's kingdom. Some takes a little more effort and thought on your part to understand how your job or retirement has to do with his kingdom. And yet for at least five years of the apostle Paul's life, he was a blue collar worker. And in that work, he was confident in his calling. The difference between Paul and us sometimes is confidence Paul knew the gospel because Jesus revealed it to him very directly. And that freed him not into writing 1 Thessalonians. Also that, it it, it freed him into tent making. And into regular conversations with friends. And a sense of calling that was every day. Paul did not know, I don't think, that he was going to be so famous. Which is part of the reason he sarcastically calls some apostles super apostles. 
in 2 Corinthians. And it's part of the reason that in the book of Acts, you kind of pick up on, he's not invited to every meeting. Did you catch that? The apostle Paul was not invited to every meeting of the early church. Sounds bananas to me. The reason I'm mentioning it is, throughout that, when he didn't think he was in the first tier of apostles, when he sometimes had to do fully blue-collar work, he was still confident of his calling. The place you live and work today, the people God has put into your life, that is your work to do in the kingdom. Those are your people to love in the kingdom in light of the gospel, which is that God loves you and likes you. That Jesus has reconciled you to himself through his work and that the Holy Spirit has pursued you, comforted you, called you his own, and is even now empowering you to love him and neighbor exactly where you find yourself. Some of you wish for a greater clarity in your calling. So I'm going to give you one tool that's a little vague, but I found very useful. Here's how you discern your own calling, whether you're 15 or 41 or 71. What are you good at? What are you affectionate about? And what are your circumstances? Remember, some of us became very passionate about our faith, maybe in college, that was my own story. And I remember feeling like, God, I'll give you anything. And I feel like maybe not as kind of a God as actually exists would say, you're not actually good at anything yet, though. I'd be like, but I'll give you all the stuff I have. You don't have anything. You're 20. You have some student loans and a car that your grandparents gave you. I'll go anywhere. I don't need you to go anywhere. I need you to grow up a little bit, and then I'll send you. Now that I'm a little older, I'm a little more settled into, you know, I'm a, a pretty good teacher of the gospel, but I don't need to be an itinerant minister. Um, that's gifts, affections. What do you love to do? And what breaks your heart when you see it not done? That's part of it, but it's not only those things. Some preachers are very gifted at, at talking about your gifts and talking about your affections and they never mention your circumstances. It's like when you tell a 10 year old, you can do anything. You can play in the NFL if you want. They probably can't. They're probably not physically going to be gifted enough. And we would worry about the concussions, but that's another conversation. My point is, if you would like greater clarity on your calling, write down these three categories in a circle. Gifts, circumstances, affections. Right? So like three parts. And then present them in an open hand to the Lord. Lord, what do I do with my gifts and my affections and my circumstances. And then after you pray about it and sit on it for a little while, ask a good friend, one who's gifted in prophecy, which means they won't just answer immediately. They'll think about it. They'll pray about it. They'll search the scriptures with you. Many of you are like, There's no, nothing's going to change in my circumstances. I don't know about you. That's becoming kind of a relief to me that I don't have as many options as I used to have. For some of you, that might feel frustrating. Um, but if there are no options, there's your calling. The place you find yourself, the people you're in relationship with, because God chose them for you, your circumstances, gifts, and affections, open-handed before Jesus. So 
Paul receives warnings about Jerusalem. They don't deter him because he longs for all to come to faith. He listens to his friends. The elders tell him it's going to be dangerous in Jerusalem. The actual words in Acts 21 are, thus says the Holy Spirit, don't go. Paul goes anyway. Man named Agabus takes his belt, ties his hands up, ties his own hands up and says, this is what's going to happen to you if you go. And Paul goes anyway. And the reason is probably to encourage the the faithful. And by reason, I mean the reason a prophecy was given that Paul didn't heed the way we expect him to. And it also confirmed his calling. Some of us long for that confirmation. We ask that in prayer. We go to our friends that are gifted this way. We return to the text that points out to us where we are is where we are called to be, at least today. Paul longs for all to come to faith as a tent maker, as a man who was reviled, as a man who in verse 32 was beaten, as a man who was humbled by the pursuing love of Jesus, as a man who probably considered himself a second tier apostle. If you read Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21, you'll notice that Paul is not invited to all the meetings and is given direction by James, the younger brother of Jesus, who was essentially the head of the church in Jerusalem. And the reason that he longed for all to come to faith was he knew the power of the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's where his confidence came from. And that's where his decision to still go to Jerusalem came from. He knew the power of the name Jesus Christ. That's where he received the confidence of his calling, which sometimes was to do blue collar work and have conversations on the side. And sometimes was to preach in synagogues and sometimes to preach to irreligious people like in Acts chapter 17 and sometimes to religious people like we'll see next week in Acts chapter 22. He was confident because he knew that in the name Jesus is salvation, hope, and light, and life. And so he continues to preach to the religious and the irreligious alike. Acts chapter 21 is interesting in how it reflects Acts chapter 15. There's a moment in Acts chapter 21, the text we're looking at this morning, where Paul does some serious work to try and help the Jewish men and women in Jerusalem essentially listen to his message and not be mad at him. That's an airplane, not thunder, right? Okay, just checking. We prayed this morning that there'd be no bears, FYI. That's one of my greatest fears. I'm going to turn, and I don't know why, I always think it'll come from this side. There's more space on this side, but I think I'm going to turn and there's going to be a bear. And church will adjourn that day. Hasn't happened yet, to my knowledge. Back to the text. You're a professional. Pull it together. Warnings about Jerusalem. Don't deter Paul, who longs for all to come to faith, the religious and the irreligious alike. So one of the things that happens in Acts chapter 21 that's strange, both because it doesn't work and it really doesn't sound like Paul, is he um, engages in some ceremonial Jewish activities to try and help the Jewish men and women not be distracted by the gospel that Jesus is in fact the Christ. And it doesn't work. They still tie him up and they bring him to a local government official who says, you're treating him poorly and I'm going to let him go and send him along to Rome, which is fascinating, not just because it doesn't work, 
not only because it doesn't sound like Paul to cater to the religious, but also because the irreligious people are defending the Christian from the other religious people because it just keeps going back and forth. There's infighting in the church. There's persecution from the outside. Then sometimes there's so much internal religious persecution. The outside governments come in and like, that's too much. Stop beating Paul. He didn't do anything wrong. And then there's a moment where the local governor confuses him with uh, essentially some, essentially like the Joker character from Batman of the first century. He's like, aren't you the one that led 4,000 assassins? Paul's like, no, that wasn't me. Paul ends up getting to go to Rome. The reason I'm pointing that out to you is the book of Acts shows us religious and irreligious people over and over who miss the gospel of Jesus. Paul longs for them to come to faith. Jesus longs for them to come to faith. And those two ways of running from God are so important that we notice. And you're like, what do you mean religiously run from God? The harshest words of the New Testament in the book of Acts and in the letters are to the men and women and the words of Jesus are the men and women who believe that the way to receive God's affection is by making good choices. Those men and women, which include some of us, receive the harshest teaching of the New Testament. And they're the ones that Paul was still attempting to guard their conscience when he took these ceremonial steps in Acts chapter 21. I hope you read it later today or this week. And it didn't work because they were hard-hearted. Then there are the irreligious that are like, I'm positive God loves me and nothing that I do matters. No, in light of God's love, we trust him with our stuff, with our bodies, with our worship, with our words. Your engagement with all of those things reflects your conviction that Jesus is Lord. And so does mine. But the religious danger is greater. Read Galatians chapter 3. The religious danger is greater. Read Matthew chapter 23. The religious danger is greater. And that is to believe what makes God happy is if I follow the rules. What makes God happy is the work of Christ done for you in the past, fully completed. You are atoned for. In light of that, is there a life of life for you? Yes. It includes what you do with your stuff and your body and your words and your time. But as a way of responding in love to God. Jesus told a story about this in Luke chapter 15. And it is the eeriest story in the scriptures, in my opinion. Because the religious person in the story never goes to the party. Do you know the story I'm talking about? We call it the prodigal son. That's not what Jesus called it. He said there was a man with two sons. And one of them ends the story at a party with the father. And one doesn't. And if you're like me, you have both the irreligious and the religious sense in you. We could call it our false selves or get hyper-spiritual about it. Here's how I closed a, a retreat with youth when I was a youth director in St. Louis. There are two ways to run from God. One is to believe that following the rules makes him happy. And one is to believe that there are no rules. 
The alternative is not to run, but to rest in his fatherly care. The alternative to running is to rest in the knowledge, the living argument in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And because of his work, you're reconciled to the father. The alternative to running is to rest in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. See Hebrews 4. And lean into that rest that all that work has been done for you. And then we return to the commands and their light and life. Commands about marriage, learning the mutual submission to the Holy Spirit and then the rhythms of unconditional love and unconditional respect. As a rule, that's a harsh taskmaster and there's no life in it. But as a good guide on the other side of the good news of Jesus, it's light and life. You're a single person and you wonder if your life is complete and the scriptures say unequivocally, yes, you're made in the image of God. God loves you and likes you and has given you full and complete purpose as a single woman or a man. As a rule, that's a harsh taskmaster. See 1 Corinthians 7. But as a response of love because of the gospel of Jesus, it's freedom and light and life. It's not that there aren't commands, but we want them in the right order. Which is after we have received the gospel and stopped running towards the rules or away from them. Pray with me. Father in heaven, indeed, blessed is your name. The name by which we are saved from our religion and from our irreligion. The one that comforts us even as you give and take away. Father, for the men and women in this room or in this area who are trusting you, comfort them right now with a palpable sense of your love and fatherly care that the work of Christ is entirely finished. They cannot add to it. For the men and women that are considering the good news of the Christian gospel, help them hear that it is not a religion, but a way. that it is a work entirely accomplished by you that we receive by faith because you love us and call us your own. Father, fill us with the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of your great love for us, that we might go out confident in our calling, in the place we find ourselves, with the people you've put into our lives. Amen.